you have your copies of God's Word, we're going to continue through the book of Acts. And we're going to pick up in an area that, if I'm honest with you, I'm a li- I get a little uncomfortable about because the primary <clears throat> point, <laughs> this is going to be a good message, um, the primary point of this is what a faithful shepherd must become and do for the church. I mean, it's just riddled throughout all of here, and, and sometimes it's a little uncomfortable. It's a challenge for me because I can see so many areas where I may fall short, and it's also uncomfortable because sometimes I have to kind of peel back the curtain and, and share kind of where a shepherd's heart can be at times, and I don't want it to come across as whining. So I, I went over this message with with many pastors and other people and said, speak into my life here. I want to make sure that I'm doing this correctly and I, and I hope that you receive it in the heart in which it's intended. And so for the next 45 minutes, I will be screaming. No, I'm teasing. We're going to be walking through this together. Let's remember that phrase, hell knows no fury like a worshiper's scorn. Paul and Barnabas have gone to different cities where they have been thrown out of one threatened to be stoned in the other, worshipped as gods in Lystra, and then stoned by the very people who wanted to worship them when they were not who they thought they would be. And we're going to pick up in this passage that Paul has been stoned to the point that they believe he is death. And that's where we pick up. In fact, let's pick up um, halfway through verse 19 so we can drag some of the context with us. And when they had won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But while the disciples of Paul stood around him, he, he eventually got up and entered the city. And the next day they went, they went with Barnabas to Derbe. After they had preached the gospel in that city, they made, their, they made many disciples, and they returned to the very city that stoned him almost to death, cast them out, worshipped them, and threatened them. He goes through all the cities he was just um, attacked in. Verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. You can see the, the, the finger stains of what a good shepherd and pastor will do in the church here. When they had preached the gospel, verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had pointed elders in every one of those churches, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord whom they had believed, and they passed through Poseidon and came to Pamphylia. Whenever I can't pronounce a city name, I just slur it into oblivion so that no one can argue its enunciation. Then, when they had spoken the word to Perga, and they went down to Attila the Hun. That's just where my brain went. That was probably one of the best movies. Let's move forward. Um, when they had spoken, they, there they sailed to Antioch, the Las Vegas of the ancient world, if that brings the context back up in which they had been commended the grace of God, the work that they had accomplished. And when they had arrived, they gathered the church together, and they began reporting all the things that God had done with them, and how he had opened the door to faith to the Gentiles. And then they spent a long time 
with their home church. With that being said, let's ask God's blessing as we walk through this together. Gracious Heavenly Father, it's been a long week, but your word is precious. And we thank you for this opportunity. May we never take it for granted. Father, I pray that you would help me to teach what this passage says. Not use this passage to teach what I want to say. I only want them to hear from you. Lord, we ask that you give us your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us. I pray that I would stand so directly behind you that my family here would see you and not me. Lord, I confess my sin. Most of my sin is on purpose and I am sorry. Please wash my feet. I thank you for your salvation. Father, I confess that these people will always belong to you. Help me to be a good shepherd, even when I fail. And so, Father, I pray these things and I ask them in your Son's precious and holy name. And if you could use a break between weddings, say amen. amen. No, Dickinson's next week. I'm looking forward to it. What's, what's on the... Um, the uh, what's that thing that you eat from? The menu. What's on the menu? Chinese. Okay, I'll make it. All right. Now, <laughs> looking forward to it. You look like death. I'm not saying that to you. All right. That's just. This is a phrase people use to describe when someone looks worn out. You know, Amy and I were laughing this week that very rarely does a Sunday go by in our lives where someone well-meaning will walk up to us and go, man, you look tired. And up until that point, we thought we were killing it. I came in this morning and someone said, you look old. And I will not share who did that. Toby. (coughs) Detzler said, I looked old. And I looked at her and I said, well, may God's blessing be heavy upon you. (laughs) Emphasis on the heavy, all right? But these are not words here that are simply used to describe Paul's emotional state. These words are an actual description of his physical condition. In fact, we just read in verse 19, it says, They stoned Paul, they dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. He was so lifeless that they assumed he's either dead or he will never make it. Unconscious, bleeding, barely breathing, These people dragged him out of the city, either believing he was dead or destroyed to the point that he would die soon. My friends, ministry is a roller coaster. These people who stoned him just two verses before that wanted to worship them as the God of Zeus and Hermes. But when he was not what they wanted them to be, they stoned him. Paul was thrown out of one city. Because ministry is a roller coaster. Let's remember the context that we studied two weeks ago. And my whole point is to kind of drag the context back up so that we can pull the application out of here. All right? 
We studied this last week. Paul was thrown out of one city, threatened to be stoned in the next, worshipped and then stoned by the very same people. And why? We talked about this because hell knows no fury like a worshiper's scorn. People demand that ministers be what they want and teach the Jesus they desire. And if you do, it is likely you will be treasured. And if you don't, there is a good possibility you may be disposed of. By the way, that is the nature of the religious heart. That is the nature of our religious heart. We have to make sure that we are, our hearts belong to Christ and not to a system that is built around Him. We want a Jesus that is near enough to save, but far enough away that He doesn't have to be served. But today we are going to move from the roller coaster of, of life in ministry and we're going to move into what a life of a faithful minister of God must do within the church and must become to those he serves. So in many ways this is going to be a challenge to me and you can listen in. But the truth of the matter is whether you're on this side of the stage or you're on this side of the stage, there is universal truths that we will find to be able to apply to each and every one of our lives. So with this, Paul begins to groan, and he comes to, he comes to and he becomes conscious. I, I want you to, if you can in your mind's eye, I want you to look at the body of a man who was so stoned that they thought he was dead. In fact, Galatians chapter 6 verse 17 says that he will bear scars from this stoning for the rest of his life and he will never completely heal from the stoning. Can you see him? It's gruesome. Caked with a mix of dirt and blood. Dizzy at first, he staggers to his feet, and then one of his disciples helps him up and he utters the words, Paul, what are we going to do now? And Paul says, with a broken voice and a wilted body, we are going to obey the great commission of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that's where we pick up in verses 21 through 23. And it says that the next day they, they preached the gospel in that city. Now, in this present context, the word gospel here implies the process of teaching and training beyond that of just evangelism. I need you to grab that. Beyond that of just evangelism, it goes a little bit further than that. Now, while this is inclusive of the gospel, and the gospel that is being the good news of salvation through faith through Jesus Christ alone, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, it went beyond the teaching of the gospel into sound doctrine and discipleship and how the deep truths of God's word are applied to our lives. In fact, we see that in the words here, and they had made many disciples while they were there. So they are not only presenting the gospel, but they are teaching them to be disciples. Quick observation here. The teaching of the church must do both today as well. Again, we are to be fishers of men and keepers of aquariums. Sometimes in our snarky approach to analogies, we will proclaim the words, we must be fishers of men, not keepers of aquarium. But if you remember a few weeks ago, the healthy church must do both. We must do both. 
We must proclaim the gospel and disciple through teaching all of the truths of the scriptures. Here's a point that really hit me this week in my study, and here it is. Conversion must pass on to continuation. Conversion must pass on to continuation. And it's one of the reasons I believe that exegetical teaching is superior to thematic teaching. We must teach what the Word of God says, not what we want to say while using the Word of God. God's Word is perfectly balanced, and we should not skip and pick and choose what we study. Here's the point. Evangelism without discipleship. Evangelism without discipleship is just as precarious as discipleship without evangelism. Both will starve the will and the plan that God has for the church. We must have our fishing poles ready with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the aquariums that are the church well-stocked and cleaned and filled with the scriptures. Amen, church? This idea that there's some binary choice, that we must be one over the other, is not consistent with the teaching of God's Word. We need both. For without both, the church grows sick. Now, with that being said, they returned to Lystra. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was stoned to the point of looking dead, my first trip would not be back to the same people who did that. Are you following me here at all? Finish this sentence. That man is cruising for a what? A bruising. Wow. You guys are, you're with me. I like that. I'll try better to lose you. Here we go. <laughs> These were the roller coaster cities, which by the way, is in the territory of Galatia. So when you read the book of Galatians, that is Paul writing to a circular letter to the churches that are written right here. These churches are the churches of Galatia. And so Paul is going back to these, to these roller coaster cities where he was stoned, threatened, run out, and almost worshipped. How is it that he can go back and not have the same experience? How is it he can go back to Lystra and they don't immediately pick up stones again? Well, it appears within the text that they confined their ministry this time to just believers. In fact, we see that in the words here that they strengthened, yeah, they strengthened the souls of the believers up there. So it looks like they kind of focused in on discipleship on the return trip to Antioch. So with that being said, these people who are being strengthened are infant churches in these cities. These are infant churches in these cities. Paul is about to train them into mature churches. Now remember this text, while it may have a lot of peripheral tentacles to it, is primarily about a faithful minister, a faithful pastor of God, and what he must do and what he must become to those he serves. And here it is, four things that we're going to find in this text, and we'll unpack them briefly. Number one, he must, Ozzy, we talked about this this morning, he must train them in the scriptures of God's word. The primary role of a pastor is to train in the scriptures. Number two, he is to strengthen the faith of those he serves. Number three, he must provide structure and organization for the biblical community. And then get ready for this, submit himself to the accountability of that group. And so let's take a look at that this morning. 
It is here we begin to see the primary function of a faithful minister. And truth be told, this can be applied to members as well. While Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey, they are conducting themselves primarily as shepherds in each church that they visit here. So he begins with this, encouraging them to continue in the faith. You see it up there in the orange. My friends, this is one of the most important responsibilities of a shepherd. And the truth is, almost 99% of encouraging people to continue in the faith takes place in the storms of life. It takes place in the storms of life. In fact, you see it right here in the orange. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, there's a lot to unpack just in that sentence alone. My friends, nothing really changes in the world. Can I, can I get a witness on that? Nothing really ever changes. Amen? We, 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 we face the same things. Yes, there's different names, but there's the same personalities. There's different cultures. There's different governmental styles, but it's the same trials, the same emotions, the same discouragements, some to a greater degree, some to a lesser degree, but, but they all share something in common. The question that I hear most when I talk to the mirror and the question I hear most when I talk to you and we talk to one another is the question, why? Why does a loving God allow hurtful and and difficult things to enter the lives of the children? He says that he loves. Why is this happening to me? Well, may I begin to answer this question by simply making a statement. And here it is. God is not a lawnmower parent. Now, you may ask, what in the world is a lawnmower parent? A lawnmower parent is one who mows down a path for their children, removing any obstacles that may cause discomfort or challenges or struggles in life. Now, with an affirmation, how many here have ever seen parents parent their children in such a way that they never face any difficult situations? Anyone at all? I have. How many here would be willing to say, I may be guilty of that a little bit? How many here are teachers? Any teachers at all that are here? Faith, can I get a witness to this at all? Oh, man. Let me just be clear. Parents who do this for their children are killing their emotional, social, and psychological growth, making them incapable of full maturity. And and I'm not saying this to scratch an itch. I'm saying this because there's a spiritual truth that follows this. It makes them incapable of full maturity, or even worse, a sense of false maturity which can be even more dangerous. Children raised by lawnmower parents often see the world idealistically, and anything that does not meet their ideal situation is seen as unfair, evil, or as the enemy. And therefore, they will attack, run, or avoid anything that does not maintain absolute ease. Do we ever do that in our spiritual walk? I have. And if you're made of the same stuff I am, my guess is you kind of might pursue that as well. You know, in fact, in many ways, God is the opposite of a lawnmower parent. In that, here it is, God purposely allows 
difficult trials and situations into our lives. In fact, there are times where God himself may, may put things in our lives to push us to growth. In fact, I would say that's a certainty. In fact, you see it in the word must here, if we highlight here. This word must, in its context and in the context it is used in other areas of Scripture, literally refers to the divine plan of God. Through many difficult situations, God's divine plan is to put us through difficult situations. Finish this verse here. In this world, you will have what? It's coming. Buckle up. They're coming. They will hate you. You will have trials. You will have tribulations. You will have disciplines. Why? Because God loves us and he wants us to grow into his image. The implication is that trials and struggles for believers are part of God's plan, i.e. we must enter through them. I often tell my children, if you think you are ready to make adult decisions, and most of my children are right there at adulthood, if not passed into it, if you're ready to make adult decisions, please know I will allow adult responsibilities and consequences to come with them. And all of God's people say what? Parents, let it flow. All right? Here's some advice that is maybe, maybe just on the other side of this. It's maybe it stands alone, and here it is. Everything you do in life, everything you do in life comes with a price. Everything. There's not a single thing you do that does not come with a price. I chose to do a little dancing last night at a wedding. I am paying the price this morning. All right? People have been mocking me just because they're jealous. All right? But I also have severe hip pain at this time. Everything comes with a price. I asked my daughter for permission uh, to give this illustration. I want to make sure I still have that permission. Do, do you? Okay. All right, kind of. I kind of have her. No, she gave me. I remember when Madison was early in her high school years, all right, and Amy and I found out that she had cheated on, what class was it? History? A history test. She had cheated. This is more of a pageant trait than it is a boomsma trait, all right? But we found out that she had cheated on a history test, and we were like, oh my goodness, how is it possible that you are human? You know, we're raising perfect children here. And apparently the teacher said that it caught a lot of students um, um, using their phones to find the answers. And in come the lawnmower parents and they blaze the trail for their children. And the, and the teachers let them off and the administration, oh, we're sorry if we hurt their feelings. I'm like, you need to hurt the feelings a little bit. Little pressure makes diamonds, Amen. Some pressure? Can I get a witness? All right, let's move forward, all right? Now I'm scratching itches. Here it is. And I I looked at my daughter and I said, now you tell me the truth. Did you use your cell phone to get answers during this test? And she said, yes. And I said, how how could you do that? And she just matter-of-factly said, because I didn't know the answers. (laughs) And I thought, you know what? I'm doing a good job. The integrity of this girl, even in the midst of cheating, just shows my shepherdness. <laughs> so I called the teacher, you know, hey, this is Reverend Brett Boomson, the Supreme, <laughs> Supreme Chancellor of Trinity Baptist Church, the 
fastest growing church on Aberdeen Street, north and west of Fuller and Plainfield, directly across from the development, which means we're the only church, all right? (laughs) I called him, and you can almost hear him quivering like, I don't know about faith, you're a teacher. When parents call, do you think, they're calling to encourage me? (laughs) I know when my phone rings, so-and-so's on the phone, I'm like, I don't know if I'm here or not, you know? I got to pray about this for a moment. And I called, and his voice was quivering, and I said, I understand my daughter cheated. He goes, yes, sir, but but if she says she didn't, I said, listen, what's my daughter's punishment? And he said, well, it's pretty severe. How many here consider themselves old school and grew up when school was school? Anyone at all? When you cheated on a test in the 80s and in the 70s, and really anything up to 2010, (laughs) what was your punishment if you cheated on a test? Anyone? You failed. What's that? You failed the course. You got a zero. You're not playing ball. Which for me was not that big of a punishment. I rolled the pine anyway, all right? So I cheated. Um, Back to the thing. He said, unfortunately, she's going to get a 10% markdown, and then she can take it again and receive a 90%. I think he kind of buckled up. All the kids are leaving. They're offended at this test thing, all right? No. Visitors, they have a a fundraiser they need to prepare for, but they really should be here to listen to this. Now, I said, he was kind of quivering, I said, that's not good enough. He says, what do you mean? I said, I want you to punish my daughter more. How in the world will my daughter learn to grow and push herself if we provide an environment where growth is not necessary? Grab that. Herein lies the point. How will we ever depend or put on the full armor of God if we never have to fight an enemy? How will we ever pick up the armor of God if there are no trials to trouble us? Of what value is the fruit of the Spirit? Of what value is the armor of God? If, if what, gro- what growth will we gain if we are never ever in a place where we must put it on and use it? My friends, God is not a lawnmower parent. The reason he allows and purposely puts affliction into our lives is because it requires us to depend on him and apply the word of God to our lives, which, by the way, is the only way we will ever be transformed into his image. You see, without trials, there is no need for the sword of the Spirit. Without the arrows of our enemies, why would we ever pick up the shield of faith? My friends, the reason that you and I are in that valley today or tomorrow is because our loving God is using it to strip us of ourselves and transform us into his likeness. And the sooner we understand that, the more we will grow from it and not be destroyed in it. You see, the question is not merely, why is this happening? The question is quite rather, Lord, what are you teaching me and how do I grow to be like you in this. In no way, by the way, the answer is found in His Word, not in how you feel. In fact, look at the words here. Through many tribulations, they're up there in the orange, through many tribulations, which force us to pick up the armor of God and become more like Him, 
We must, because it is the divine plan in the yellow, it is the divine plan to force us to use the armor of God and to strengthen ourselves that we enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm not going to unpack what I'm about to say because time does not permit. I'm simply going to say something and allow the Holy Spirit to uniquely speak to you in your life in this situation that you are in that no one else, or maybe even I, don't even know about it. So here it is. There's two statements. Here they are. A good beginning is great. Salvation. A good beginning is great. But a good continuation must be the result. Sanctification. Growth in Christ. Conversion must pass on to continuation, period. If there is no ladder, if we are not growing in the image and desiring more of Christ, we might want to examine the beginning. Number two, the thorns of this world will prick us as we climb upwards to the kingdom. But the roses await us there. Let me say this a different way. And I want you to press it into your own heart and life as I do the same. Ease seduces us to forget the eternal. Ease seduces us to forget the eternal. May I ask you, do you pursue the path of least resistance in your spiritual walk? Trials awaken us for the longing of it. Trials awaken us to the longing of it. So now that Paul has trained them, not only with the gospel, but with sound teaching, not only with a fishing pole, but with a clean aquarium, now that he has strengthened them and prepared them for the trials that must come because it is the divine plan of God, you are in difficult situations right now because God has a plan to, to purify us from ourselves and to become like him. And now that he has prepared them for that, he is now going to provide structure for them to grow. Take a look at this. And when they had appointed elders for these churches in Galatia. It was wise for Paul to return to these infant churches, not only to strengthen and teach, but also to organize the church. I don't know about you, but I often hear the words from people who come in and out of church and are looking for reasons not to have to commit to the local New Testament church. They'll say the words that sound a little bit like this, I believe in God. I believe in the church of Christ. I just don't believe in an organized church of Christ. My friends, those who do not believe in the organized church of Christ do not believe in the biblical church of Christ. You ever notice we don't say this about any other institution in our lives? Only the church do we apply this, 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 this faulty thinking in analogies. You ever notice people don't say this about other institutions? You know, none of us would go up to Doc Dickinson over here and say, you know what, I think it's really good that we have heart transplant in Grand Rapids. I just don't think it ought to be organized. We would, you know, what do you mean you don't think? So let's press this a little bit further. I love football. I just think all those lines out there in the field are unnecessary and they need to go. 
Roads are necessary, are they not? I believe in roads. I just don't think there should be stop sign rules or red lights. My favorite one, and Ozzy, this is for you. NASCAR is fun to watch. How many here love professional left-hand turns? Anyone at all? It's incredible. But my point is, before Ozzy gets too mad at me, all right, NASCAR is fun to watch. I just don't think they should have to all drive in the same direction. And people in the stands should be allowed to wander wherever they want to go. How many here would pay-per-view that? Anyone at all? I don't believe in organized churches. That's why I fish on Sundays and volunteer my time to enforce trout regulations so that there is no overfishing. You see the irony there? Here's my point. We must remember that every organism is highly organized. Every organism is highly organized. And God's church is no different. If it is not, it will not survive. Churches must have adequate organization so that life can grow and be preserved. So that life can grow together and be preserved. Now, I want you to hear me on this, and feel free to affirm this with an amen. Churches do not need Americanized CEOs. Amen? They don't need CEOs. In fact, churches don't need dictators to suffocate the life out of them. Churches do not need pastors to micromanage them into conformity. The church needs elders to provide enough structure to grow, yet enough freedom to breathe. Are you following me here? Enough freedom to believe and breathe. Now, the word appointed here, if we highlighted that, this word here literally means to approve by a show of hands in a, in a meeting of the assembly. Paul gets together, they appointed some people, and they voted on these elders. And they became the spiritual leadership of the church. Now, there are a couple things I want you to see here. There was a plurality, i.e. more than one elder, in every church. The elders are selected in every community. You see that in the words right here. Hence, they, they appointed elders in every church. I think if we, there it is. In every church, there is a plurality of elders. Let me tell you this. A faithful shepherd should install a group of elders in every church who collectively represent the spiritual leadership of the church under Christ and submission to his word. They are to collectively submit to one another and work together for the best interest of the Lord and his people. My friends, apart from teaching God's word, the best gift I could ever seek to provide you with is strong, biblical, loving, humble, firm leadership that never makes a meaningful decision. Grab this. Never makes a meaningful decision where all of them are, that all of them are in agreement under Christ and His Word. My friends, I guess what I'm trying to say is this. Churches die from passive leadership. Churches die with passive leadership, and they are crushed under oppressive dictators. We must be organized enough biblically to provide structure and growth, but not so stringent that there is no air of spiritual liberty to breathe. It is the unity of Christ we must seek, not the conformity to ourselves. And by the way, if I may just make an observation, and I'm almost done here. 
if I may make an observation, this is where the most disunity and damage happens in the church, regardless of denomination. But I'll speak to the Baptist denomination. By the way, we are not Baptists. We are Christians of, and children of the living God who happen to attend a Baptist church. Amen? In the moment the Baptist church leaves the sound doctrine of the Word of God, we leave with it. We are children of God, first and foremost. I want you to grab this here. This is where most of the damage happens in the church. Those who think there has to be more control versus those who think there should be less control. The truth is found in the middle. The spiritual liberty of Romans chapter 14 must be held in balance with the structure of 1 Timothy Titus in the Pauline epistles. This must be the second greatest priority at this church here. At this church here. Because apart from God's word, everything stems from healthy leadership. And I must, I just want to take a moment here to commend your elders that you voted on as an assembly, as your spiritual leadership. Of whom, by the way, is my authority. It is both a joy to lead them as the lead pastor and shepherd of this church, and it is a pleasure to submit to them as my authority given to me as God. I just want you to tell you something. I am blessed to be under their authority, and I want you to know, so are you. So are you. Now, I want you to notice one more thing, and we'll go through this rather quickly, all right? The only thing I want to touch on here is two things in this passage here. They began to report all things back to the home church in Antioch, okay? And they had spoken the word of Pergamum, and they went down to Elia, and they, started, and they sailed to Antioch. There it is. And they began to report all things. Here it is. A faithful pastor welcomes accountability. A faithful pastor welcomes accountability. He does not run from it. Beware of a missionary or a pastor who says his own only accountability is God. That is a dangerous person. It is a dangerous person because all of us can be self-deceived. All of us can fall into self-righteousness. And it's one of the reasons Paul appointed a plurality of elders in the churches. Because here it is. It is in biblical community that we find spiritual protection from self-deceit. It is in biblical community that we find spiritual protection from self-deceit. Because I don't know about you, but I can convince myself of my amazingness. Anyone else? Are you able to do that if you really wanted to? You know who I can't convince of my amazingness? All of you. All right? We need each other to see things that we would normally have blinds, blinders on to see. We need one another, both members and leaders. And by the way, may I have permission to speak humbly into this personally? If I could, just open my heart just, just a little bit here. When you have faithful leadership or a faithful pastor who welcomes accountability, allow him the space to use it. Allow him the space to use it. If a person knows there is no grace and there is no mercy, and when they fail, they will not seek accountability. One of the saddest things that is true about the church of Jesus Christ in in America today is that when someone fails, when someone blows it, who is the last group of people they want to know about it? Anyone at all? You got a name? What is it? Church. What will they think? 
We have, to, we have to live out the gospel. The same grace, the same mercy that Christ gives us in our personal lives, we need to give towards one another in the church. Being in ministry is a never-ending hurricane of conflicting demands, crises, needs, responsibilities, mountaintops, and valleys. And any decision a pastor makes will be seen by someone as a moral failure. Anything he does will be seen by someone, not just as a disagreement, not just as a bad decision, but as a moral failure, all the way down to raking your leaves. I've shared this story once before, so I'll make this quick. At my first church, I had two acres of property that were filled with mature oak trees. First mistake in purchasing property, all right? Doc, you have a lot, I'm basically using Doc as, as an illustration now. You have, you have property with a lot of trees, but as a doctor, you get like this jet engine leaf blower that you brought once here, and he's just like, and I'm like, that's a rich person thing. You want to know what my leaf blower is? Takes forever, I get lightheaded, I'm found on the ground, people complain, all right? So I had a rake, and... Man, I got I to do this quickly. This is all of 20-some years ago. This lady came up to me and goes, I drove by your house this week, and your yard looks horrible. And I said, man, you look tired. No, I didn't. I didn't say that. All right, I didn't say that. I say, may God's blessing be heavy upon you. That's code for, uh, um, no. <laughs> your yard looks horrible. And people know you're a pastor of this church. Do you what kind of testimony? See the moral failure? You know what kind of testimony that is to the community? You can't wake your legs. And after that, it was just white noise. But I took it to heart. So I got my rake and my blower. And I went out there and I raked all week long. Rake, rake, rake. You should have seen my deltoids. Are my deltoids back here? I don't even know. All right? But I, I was just raking and raking and blowing and raking and picking up and picking up. And I finally get back to church ready to receive my, my accolades. And this gentleman walked up and goes, I rode by your house this week several times. And every time you were out there raking your leaves, what do we pay you to do? This is a poor reflection on your discernment, and I'm concerned about whether or not you're ready for ministry. I just sat there, calluses on my hands. I uh, changed up the illustration in the back, so I want you to hit that three times. One, now hit it again. Two, good job on the leaves. I hate your guts on the leaves. There it is. Now, here's my point. Oh, by the way, to this day, I still break out in a sweat when a leaf hits the ground. I'm like, what kind of moral failure am I today? Oh, God, it's not an oak leaf. It's a maple leaf. Maybe I can rake that. Now, here's my point, and I got this from Pastor Jory. Everyone thinks that given the chance, they could bring the Detroit Lions to the Super Bowl. Are you following me on that? Let me change that up. Everyone thinks that if given the chance, they could bring the church to perfect health. Here's my point. Allow your leaders the grace they need when they fail. Or make a decision you might not have made. 
You know, Winston Churchill said this. I want to share this with you. And that means we have just 20% of a page left. So roughly one hour. Now, no. For visitors here, we're almost done. All right? Winston Churchill said this. And I, I appreciated the, the heart behind it. It is not the critic that counts. Nor the person who points out how the leader has stumbled or how the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the person who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred with dust, sweat, and blood, and strives bravely, yet comes short again and again and again. And when and if he fails, at least he fails while in the arena and not as a spectator who knows neither victory or defeat. And then I like this last one. And they spent a long time with the disciples in Antioch. I think we can understand why this has been an exhausting roller coaster of a trip. In fact, the stoning Paul receives in Lystra will be on his body for the rest of his life. They needed to recharge. My friends, a good shepherd and good leader knows the importance of not running dry. A pastor cannot give more than what he takes in. And by the way, that's true for you as well. Or we will soon offer nothing. A shepherd needs time to recharge, and so do you. Or we will simply burn out. My friends, this is the heart and the efforts of a faithful minister of Jesus Christ. I want you to know that I acknowledge that I fail often. I told someone not too long ago, when I say the words, I'm not perfect, that is not a euphemism for I'm pretty fantastic. When I say I'm not perfect, I mean I am a man who in his efforts to do his best often fails miserably. But my hope is that in the midst of my falling short, I hope you can see at least three things through the fog of my errors. Number one, he teaches the Word of God. He encourages us that conversion must move to continuation. And He provides organization for the church to both grow and breathe and then submits Himself to their accountability. Next week, we will see why good leadership is critical to a healthy church. Because problems will come. Problems do come. And when they do, biblical loving leadership better be there or the church and the testimony of Christ will suffer. May God grant us the mercy here at Trinity to do what we should do. I love you guys. My goal is that you would go live your lives in the spiritual liberty that God has given you while desiring to live your life to bring Him the most glory. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before You and we ask one simple prayer. Make us Your church. In Your image, not ours. Father, bless these people. Thank You for them. May Your hand of blessing be upon them. And it's in Christ's name that I pray this. Amen.